It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family. Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based family-owned financial planning firm providing financial advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Call Doug, Linda, and Deborah at their office, 919-872-7000, with your financial planning questions. That's 919 919- Now, here are Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. And we are the Lewis family, ready to answer your questions tonight. This is Linda Lewis, and thank you for joining us on Money Matters on News Radio 680 WPTF. And I'm Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Well, there was an interesting article that I saw, Doug, um, and it was entitled, True or False, Many Americans Don't Understand the Basics of Investing. That article you're talking about, Linda, really drove home what we call the point of financial illiteracy. We have known for many years that in the United States, we have an epidemic of financial illiteracy. And this actually was a survey which was run by FINRA. Now, FINRA, of course, is the financial industry regulatory agency or regulatory authority, otherwise known as FINRA. used to be called NASD. But the point is that FINRA ran a survey of 28,000 U.S. respondents And they called it the Investor Education Foundation Survey. It was quite revealing, at least to them, I guess it was. It wasn't revealing to me, but it was to them. Because what they came up with was that very few Americans understand the basic concepts about investing. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, uh, In this survey... um, when it comes to understanding these basic concepts, many of them failed to give the correct answer. That's exactly right. Take a very simple question they asked. They asked a simple true or false question. Buying a single company's stock usually provides a safer return than a stock mutual fund. So is it, is it true or is it false to buy a single company's stock or to buy a stock mutual fund? What's the answer? Well, only 6% of the people got it. Isn't that something? Only 6%. Most of the people actually had no idea whether it's safer to buy a mutual fund or to buy an individual stock. You know, this kind of, of, of a response is shocking. Then they asked another question. Very basic, you would think. If interest rates rise, what will typically happen to bond prices? They gave three possible answers. They could rise, the prices of bonds could rise, could fall, or could stay the same. And they wanted to know. If interest rates rise, what will typically happen to bond prices? Well, in the survey, just 26% answered correctly. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> that that over fall. three out of four people missed it. What was the right answer, of course? If interest rates rise... Bond prices are going to fall. Oh. <laughs> but it, it was amazing. People did not know that. 
Look at some of these other questions they gave. These were multiple choice questions also. They asked a question, the benefit of owning investments that are diversified is, and they gave three choices. Okay, benefits of owning investments which are diversified. Number one, it can reduce risk. Number two, it can increase return. Number three, it reduces taxes. What's the right answer? It reduces risk. That's right. The benefit of owning investments that are diversified reduces risk. But only 56% of the people got it right. Give us a call at 919-872-7000. We look forward to meeting with you. So think about that. So what's wrong with the other two answers? Well, of the subset of the survey respondents, those who own stocks or mutual funds, 72% got the answer right. And of the separate subset of those who don't own stocks or mutual funds, only 48% answered correctly. The question is, what's wrong? What's wrong with increasing return? Diversification has nothing to do with increasing return. You're right. But nobody knew that. What about reducing tax liability? That's nonsense. That's totally, actually, it increases tax, tax liability very often. If you All have right, a take another capital t- gain, right? Right. All right, well, what about uh, the next question? A young investor who's willing to take moderate risk for above average growth would be most interested in, number one, treasury bills, number two, money market mutual funds, or number three, balanced stock funds. And this is a young investor who's willing to take risk for above average growth. You know, only a third of the people got this right. Of course, the right answer is balanced stock funds. Correct. But what's wrong with treasury bills? Well, obviously, treasury bills are just the exact opposite of that. And what's wrong with money market funds? Well, money market funds can't go up or down, so you get no growth, but only 37% of the people got it right. These were sort of shocking uh, it deserved a very big place in the Wall Street Journal, which is, I'm glad they did. They pointed to the point of illiteracy. They asked a question about 401ks. They said, what's the main advantage of a 401k? And they gave three possible answers. Number one, it provides a high risk of return with little risk. Number two, allows you to shelter retirement savings from taxation. Number three, provides a well-diversified mix of investment assets. And the correct answer is? Well, the right answer, of course, a 401k has nothing to do with risk or non-risk, and it has nothing to do with diversification. The correct answer, of course, is a 401k allows you to shelter retirement savings from taxes, but only half of the people got it right. The other half got it wrong. And... Uh, these the, And you just think of the number of people that contribute to a 401k without having any idea of why they're contributing why to they're a 401k. Exactly. <laughs> All right. And then the last question had to do with uh, to ensure that some of your retirement savings will not be subject to income tax upon withdrawal, you would contribute to, number one, a traditional IRA or individual IRA. Number two, a Roth IRA, or number three, a 401k. How many got it right? 44% 
answered less, it correctly. Less than half of the people got it right. So what's wrong with a traditional IRA to ensure that some of your retirement savings will not be subject to income taxes when you withdraw? Well, a traditional IRA, it's 100% is taxed. Taxed, uh-huh. 100%, not some of it, all of it's taxed. And Upon the sa- withdrawal. Right. right. And the same with the 401k. Only a Roth IRA gives you some tax-free withdrawal. Because you're paying the taxes up front. You've right? paid the taxes up front. So I think it was a really good article. I hope it drives more people to looking for financial advice. Use a certified financial planner. And for Pete's sakes, don't accept the fact that you are uh, ignorant and there's nothing to do about it. One interesting thing in the article was the majority of the people they surveyed before they took the test thought they were very educated and turned out that they are financial illiterates. Well, you're listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. And uh, if you've got a question or you've got questions about your situation with regard to retirement or investments, call us in Raleigh at Lewis Financial Management. The number to call is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Well, Doug, um, another question that came up regarding college funding. What is a 529 expense? The article in the journal, Linda, on that was very illuminating. I There was another test here, as a matter of fact. I didn't get 100% myself. I only got 99%. I even missed one of these questions here, and I've been doing this a long time. But the point is that college expenses, of course, are in the news almost every day now. However, this matter of the 529 is not quite easily understood because withdrawals from 529 plans are tax-free, they're supposed to be, but only if they can be used for what's called qualified expenses for for higher education. So that brings us to the question, well, if you put money into a 529, and you can, you can put an unlimited amount into a 529 plan, but when, when you start taking it out, what is it for? Well, you've it, got it, to use the money for tuition. That one's tax-free. Um, other fees that are required by the university, That's such tax-free. as your room and your board. That's for tax-free. And you have to be enrolled at least half time. And and there are other things that were possible, according to the article. There were course requirements for books and calculators and software. If that's required in a course, then money taken out of a 529 is also tax-free. And then uh, they all, there, as are um, any services for any special needs students that attend college, those are also qualified, right? They are. But what was more interesting was what's not tax-free. If a parent takes out money for anything that doesn't meet the quote-quote qualified expense criteria then the earnings of that distribution are going to be taxed as ordinary income, not capital gain, and also could get a 10% federal tax penalty. So what might be one of those expenses that you take money out of a 529 to give to your kid? Intramural sports. Boo. Taxed and possible 10% penalty. What about sororities, fraternities? Same story. Doesn't work. You've got money in a 529, your child wants to go ahead and use part of the money, you take it out for fraternity expenses, sorry, you just 
ended up with a tax liability and could be a 10% penalty on top of that. Uh, And for transportation expenses. Wasn't that interesting? Let's say that you have a 529 plan, you send your child to the University of Texas in Austin, and you want to take some money out to fly the kid home for vacation. Not an acceptable expense. So I found it a very interesting article, and uh, of course, I'm not a great fan. You're not a fan of of 529s anyway. Well, what are you a fan of, Doug? I'm a fan of parents keeping it themselves. (laughs) All right, explain (laughs) to me how you do that. Well, all right, okay. I don't like the idea of socking away money for Junior when he's three years old because he's going to go to Harvard and he may just really enjoy when he gets out of high school uh, going into the military. He may enjoy opening up his own little business as, as, as lawn maintenance. He may not even want to go to college. I'm, I, I, I'm not in favor of, uh, of planning that way. It's what I call letting the tax tail wag the dog. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website, DougAndLinda.com. On the other hand, when it comes... So, so what do I mean when I say keep it yourself? Well, first of all, as you're earning the money in your earning years and you're a young parent, it's yours. Whether you put it aside for yourself or you put it aside for your child, it's still yours. But if you put it into a 529 plan... Or you put it aside in a UGMA, Uniform Gift to Minors account, or UTMA. Right. Those are all monies that are designated for that child because you thought you'd get a tax benefit for it. And I don't like that approach. I'd much rather you keep it yourself. And then when it comes time for college, there are programs that I do like. I I like the Parent Plus program. That's a program that allows you, the parent, to go ahead and borrow over uh, a... And, and you borrow for one year of college, but you pay it back over 10 years. I did the numbers, and you could send a child to Duke for about 300 bucks a month. Now, that's very attractive because you've been able to spread it over so many years, and there's no, uh, no need base. You do not have to qualify for that. You don't have to be uh, uh, a poor child. Your parents can make a half million dollars a year. You can send the child wherever you want. Anyway, you don't know what's going to happen until it's time for college. And in the meantime, I'd rather the parents keep the money under their own control. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on News Radio 680 WPTF. Well, Doug, uh, what about the matter of mutual fund yields? Can that you was, address that? Yeah, I, I saw something also in the journal about fund yields. I can, Lynn, and, and it, it, it's, it's a definitional issue which confuses a lot of people. First of all, the article talked about yield, but most clients that come in are also totally ignorant about what does yield mean. Now, yield is not return. We need to understand that. I like to talk about investments as being chickens and what comes off of them as eggs. Okay, so if there's a dividend, if there's interest, that's the egg. But on the other hand, if the Mm -hmm. chicken just gets fatter and fatter and fatter and increases in weight, I like to call that return because that's the size of the investment growing okay, or shrinking. Mm -hmm. Well, when we come to this matter of return, total return in the world of investments refers to the total growth of the investment. But yield 
is just the income that comes off it. And then there are two different yield definitions. There is what's called the 12-month yield. And the 12-month yield is very often quoted, if you look on a Morningstar report, which analyzes a particular mutual fund, or you look inside the mutual fund prospectus very often, you will see this matter of a 12-month yield. You'll also see something called a SEC yield, and that's a different yield computation. The 12-month yield looks at the total dividends paid over the prior 12 months and divides that by the current price of the fund. That's a 12-month yield. But the SEC yield takes the dividends over the past 30 days and divides that by the current price. So it's very different, these two definitions. You shouldn't always assume that the yield which the fund was paying 12 months ago could be the yield that it's paying today. The SEC yield is much more uh, accurate, although it can have some oopses also because sometimes over a short period of time, there's a temporary uh, reduction. Anyway, that was the definitional difference of the SEC yield and the 12-month yield. Give us a call during the week at Lewis Financial Management. Make an appointment to sit down face-to-face and discuss your your situation. The number at our office during the week is 919-872-7000. That's 919-872-7000. Cheryl, this is Doug Lewis. How can I help you? Uh, My son wants me to invest in a subchapter S corporation. And I don't invest anything I can't afford to lose. So I'm not really concerned about that. But I'm concerned about the fact that he wants me to encourage some of my friends to do so. And I don't understand the uh, ins and outs of what a subchapter S corporation means. Well, that's like saying your son would like to get married, but not telling you, you know, uh, who he's marrying. The the subchapter S corporation is simply a container. What is the investment? Uh, the investment is in, in publishing. He, he has something really going in Arizona, and he needs to expand. Oh, so he wants you to help him expand his business? Yes. Oh, well, he's not talking about you investing in a subchapter S. He's asking you to loan him some money. Uh, well, yeah. I'm, I'm going to get stock for it. Yeah, well, that, you know, and a nickel used to buy you a cup of coffee. I won't even buy you a cup of coffee today. So the stock is basically going to be worthless. All you're doing is loaning him money in exchange for the fact that if his business happens to make a profit, then down the road, you can get a piece of the profits. But if I will tell you with an absolute, absolute assurance, say no. Just say no. Right, Linda? Yeah, I would agree. It's too risky. And... Never with your kids, with your family. Never invest with the family. Okay, even if I can afford to lose it. No, no. I mean, you create bad, bad. Uh, I, I, I would say no. I, I tell all of my clients, do not invest. If you want to give them a gift, give them a gift. If you can afford it. How old are you? <laughs> sixty. You're sixty years old. What's yeah. your income? Uh oh, roughly two hundred thousand a year. All right, you're making two hundred thousand a year, so you can go ahead and lose some money. Yes. I presume you're not. Your living expenses aren't running two hundred thousand oh, no, a year, no, are no, they? No. no. Okay. Uh, what does your investment portfolio look like? I've got a really, I've, I've got a, a very good one. I've got everything from uh, mutual funds and stocks and bonds, and I've got some T bills, and I've, I've got really good spread on that. Okay. And how much do you have invested? Probably about three hundred fifty thousand. All right, so you've got $350,000 investment. Where is your income coming from? Uh, a lot of it's coming from uh, rental property uh-huh. and uh, 
uh, and a business that I own. $350,000 is only at best going to be able to produce about $25,000 a year income for you. So I'd be real concerned if that's all your investment portfolio is. And if you're bringing in $200,000 a year, what are you doing with all your money? Well, it's not going into your investment portfolio. No, it's, I've, I've been putting it back in business. And how much does your son want you to, learn to invest in his subchapter? Oh, only about $5,000. Okay. Well, first of all, give him the $5,000 and tell him that you don't want any, any of his stock. All right. That's the best thing to do. It sounds like you're a prime candidate for financial planning. If you tell me your investment portfolio is only $350,000, and I know that can't support a person who's bringing in an income of $200,000, because that's only $25,000 a year income. And if you tell me you don't know where all the money is going on your income side, $200,000, if you're plowing all of that back in, what's the structure of your business? Is it a proprietorship or a corporation? It's proprietorship. That's even worse. That means that every bit of your income is producing a tax liability for you, and yet you're not accumulating. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it looks to me like you need some real financial advice from a certified financial planner to tie together the three components of your world. It's wonderful that you've got an income of 200000 but you should be investing a fixed amount of that income, a significant amount, because you're 60 years old, and that's a scary age. So if I were you, the, the business side of it needs to be tied together with the investments side. You should be able to see how much you will have accumulated five years from now when you're 65, how much of that income coming in from your business will be over there in your investment portfolio. You see what I'm saying? Yes. And the goal should be that your investment portfolio could support you at your lifestyle. You need to analyze your lifestyle very carefully. If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Okay. I don't want to let her off the air without answering her question of definition. What is a subchapter S? It's nothing more than a corporation that does not pay taxes. It's a flow-through entity. It just lets you go ahead and have a non-taxable entity that looks and acts like a partnership or even a sole proprietorship like your business. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. It's just a non-taxable corporation as opposed to a regular corporation. Then it's got some other features and benefits to it. But for a startup, it's usually, uh, that's all that... I mean, that's all you need to know about it because it doesn't have any real bearing on your end. What it has to do is over on his end. And if you get some stock in it, you know, that's that's not your goal. Your goal is to help him out. Right. Yeah. So it and, sounds like I should not be encouraging my friends to do this either. Uh, absolutely not. You don't no. want to lose your friends. No, don't, don't, don't do that. That's called venture capital. What it really is, it's not subchapter S, it's venture capital. And that's a real sad situation when, because of personal reasons, friends and relatives contribute to a venture capital deal, which is another term for startup business. Mm -hmm. uh, no, don't do that. That's, that's, a, that's a real no-no. You can create a, a, a quagmire of problems down the road, which are not worth it to you or your son. And write down your questions, because whoever you use as your advisor should be able to answer those questions. Okay. And we thank you so much for calling, Cheryl. Take care. Well, Doug, very interesting article I saw a couple of weeks ago in USA Today about how crooks are conning advisors and stealing clients' cash. Uh, and basically what well, yeah, the article... What, yeah, what was it about? Uh, very interesting, uh, well, really an alert to all of our listeners. And what's happening is that these cyber robbers are sending fake emails to planners and to others 
to wire money to bogus accounts. I've actually had a couple come to my office. I come saw to, one Linda, the other day. that is true. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. They make it look as if it's a client who is giving an instruction to take money out of their account and send it to them or send it to someplace. Right. And uh, so this is what, uh, you know, was was noted in the article that that in a new twist, cyber robbers are using ginned up email messages in an attempt to, to con financial advisors into wiring cash out of their clients' online investment accounts. And then, you know, basically... You have to look at your emails. I was just wondering, how did they get access to the email well, address? Well, basically, what, what the article said was that um, these cyber criminals have discovered that investors are now routinely relying on email to authorize their advisor to execute a financial transaction. Yeah, but how do how do they get into where well, I'm receiving the email and it looks to me like it's the client's email address that it's coming from? I'm not exactly sure, but search engines and social networks have made finding and profiling potential victims and their advisors easy. They must be using hackers. They yeah, must be hacking the client's to account to somehow get his email address and then sending it to the advisor, such as myself, or to the attorney, or whoever they're dealing, whoever the CPA. client chooses to dealing with. Exactly. What I noticed in the couple that I got was the grammar was slightly off, and I had a funny feeling here uh, that this was a non-English speaker. Not. Yeah, yeah. It did not. The, a couple of little grammatical errors that caught me there, and I said, "That's not my." client but i got i almost got caught i had almost uh so what i did is we called the client to see is this really your instruction the client was shocked so it's, so um to all of our listeners if uh if you're working with an advisor and uh you know verify that or at least let them know to verify that uh if there are instructions by email to make sure that they verify it to you prior to following those instructions. Anyway, I, I just thought it was very interesting. The uh, There's the, a shift is what's happening. Exactly. They're impersonating clients' emails, and the shift on the, uh, on the abuse side is no longer going to the client, the investor. The shift is now to the financial planner, to the stockbroker, to the attorney, uh, and that's sort of a, an indicator, I guess, that the well is running dry for them. They're no longer able to hit up like they used to. You know, uh, this is your uh, secret aunt in Nigeria, and I have $2 million that uh, I'm getting ready to pass over. Uh, and <laughs> They're really bogus. Uh, Some of the ones anyway, are really yeah. funny. Well, I mean, just like the one that you asked me about the other day. What about this Verizon bill? I'm like, oh, we don't have a Verizon bill. <laughs> yeah, that was really something. It said, click here for, and for and you can let PayPal pay your bill for you. I'm like, but we don't have Verizon. But anyway, they're out there, so beware. If something has popped in your head tonight, give me a call during the week. My number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-872-7000. Well, Doug, I had a number of questions that I wanted to go over with you that I thought maybe some of our listeners may have on their minds regarding charitable trusts and how they work. And could you define what is a charitable remainder trust? 
Yeah, Lynn, because as you know, it's a very complicated, but in my opinion, the Charitable Remainder Trust is the most sophisticated, powerful, and flexible financial planning tool available to the public today and also the least understood. I would say it's the best kept secret. So let's first define it. A Charitable Remainder Trust, we call them CRTs, is a tax-advantaged, irrevocable trust that can provide the client with a lifetime income stream and yet immediate tax benefits. And the trust principal eventually is going to go to some sort of charity, but this is all defined and regulated and provided for as a tax incentive under the Internal Revenue Code. Well, Doug, does a charitable remainder trust offer other benefits? Well, yes. Since the charitable trust is an irrevocable trust, the principal is not subject to probate. So it's going to bypass probate. It's not subject to federal estate taxes, and it's not subject to creditor claims. I think that's excellent. Now, what type of client could benefit from a charitable remainder trust? The client with highly appreciated assets, Linda, who would like to increase their income, who wants to reduce taxes, and are charitably minded would benefit from a CRT. And um, how soon will the charitable remainder trust generate income? Well, you know, a CRT can generate income payments almost immediately and can continue on either a quarterly, monthly, or semi-annual and annual basis. I like mostly quarterly. Sometimes uh, people that have questions or are deciding on setting up a trust wonder if the income can pass to their children or to others that they want to designate. Mm -hmm. Well, it can. A CRT can provide income, Linda, for the life of the donor plus another 20 years to go to their children after the donor's death if they choose. I think that's excellent. Now, how is the, um, the income taxed? The income from the trust is paid out in what's called four-tier accounting. So the first money coming out is taxed as ordinary income. Second money coming out is paid as capital gains tax income. Third money is tax-free income, and fourth money is return of principal. But most commonly, it's just plain old ordinary income. Now, how do they uh, calculate the tax deduction from a charitable remainder trust? Yeah, the tax deduction, because you're right, Lynn, that's one of the real sizzle points of of a charitable trust. A CRT, Linda, works very much like an IRA or a retirement plan where you get a deduction for putting your money in it. And the computation is an IRS formula which is used to determine the future value of a present gift because you're going to be giving something maybe after you're dead or after you and your spouse are dead or maybe after you're both dead and your children live 20 more years. So it's a future gift, but they're computing the present value of that future gift. And that's the amount that the tax deduction is going to be computed against, or is going to, that's going to be the computed value of your charitable deduction that you get to take today on your income tax return, even though you're not going to give it away until maybe 40 years from now. Another question that listeners have is, are contributions to the charitable remainder trust revocable? No, no, that's one of the no-nos. Because since the IRS allows the avoidance of capital gains tax, and that's one of the sizzle points, that you can avoid all capital gains taxes and you can still get a charitable tax deduction today, then there must be some irrevocable guarantee that some gift will be received by some charity sometime in the distant future. So the contributions to the CRT must be irrevocable. Now, when the charitable trust is set up, 
Can more than one charity be named as a charitable beneficiary of a charitable remainder trust? Oh, yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, there can be multiple charities. As a matter of fact, you can have as many as you want, and you can change your mind. And I guess they have to be qualified with the IRS, correct? It's got to be a real charity or a real nonprofit. It could be a university. It can be a, a historic society, but it must be a nonprofit organization. Go ahead, get started. Give us a call during the week at Lewis Financial Management. Make an appointment to sit down face-to-face and discuss your your situation. The number at our office during the week is 919-872-7000. That's 919-872-7000. Now, what assets can a person transfer to fund the CRT? Well, just about any asset, really, Linda. At least any asset that has no mortgage on it can be transferred to a CRT. There has to be a certain amount of caution, however, in transferring things like real estate and businesses. However, uh, they are happening all the time. You can put a piece of real estate into a CRT and sell it and avoid the capital gains tax. You can put your own business. It's a wonderful way to sell a business and not pay any of the capital gains tax on the sale of a business. You just have to use caution and work with an expert like a certified financial planner who is experienced in CRTs. Any piece of real estate that doesn't have a mortgage can be transferred in. And a business. Uh, a business, uh, as well as uh, closely held stock in a, in a business. And cash. Stocks also can be uh, transferred Stocks. in. Um, and... By doing this, essentially what a person's doing is is decreasing the value of the estate, correct? That's one thing they're definitely doing. That's right, Linda. They're decreasing the value of their estate, and they're increasing their tax deductions. Can only a portion of a particular asset be transferred into a charitable remainder trust? Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, that's very common, too, where you put in part of the business or part of the piece of real estate. You draw an imaginary line. Let's say you've got a five-acre tract. You draw an imaginary line and you're going to transfer into the charitable trust maybe two out of the five acres. You don't have to really go ahead and cut it into two pieces. You could put part of your business into the charitable trust and you get the tax deduction. And then later on at a later date, you can add more things to your CRT, which will increase the retirement income that the client is getting and also increase the tax deduction. So it's an outstanding vehicle for building retirement income down the road by continuing to make annual contributions of portions of assets into the trust. One major question that people that are thinking of setting up a trust have is, can they be their own trustee? That's the key question, Linda. That's the real key question. It's funny because I've spoken to a lot of um, so-called experts around the country and even here in our town Uh, bank trust officers, attorneys and accountants. And would you be surprised if I told you most of the people tell me the answer to your question is no, you can't be your own trustee? Well, I think most people are inclined to using a bank or a university or some other uh, nonprofit organization uh, to be the trustee, correct? Yeah, because that's the way the bank makes their money. They want to be the trustee of your trust, but the client, he wants to be his own trustee. And the answer to the question is an emphatic yes. A donor can be his own trustee. And as a matter of fact, all the charitable trusts that I've set up for my clients have always been their own trustee. And sometimes a donor may want to consider having a co-trustee. Right. And that's not a bad idea. Just for maybe you become incapacitated down the road or something like that. We're going to do one of those next week for a client. 
Now, are there ongoing costs uh, associated with setting up a charitable remainder trust? Well, yes, not expensive, but generally there are annual tax filings that have to be uh, done. And there's a valuation to the trust called asset valuation and important record keeping for the complicated four-tier accounting method. Why would a person want to serve as a trustee? Well, Linda, really, traditionally a bank, a a trust company, or a charity served as trustee to be sure that all the elements of the money management and the administration were handled properly. With this arrangement, however, that's the traditional way, but with this arrangement, however, the donor had little or no control over the investment objectives and didn't have any recourse if he or she wasn't satisfied with how the money was being managed or anything else. And so what I like to use, I like to use what they call the Renaissance system, which lets the client, the donor, maintain complete control in the areas of selecting the money manager and all the investments and the administration while delegating the day-to-day details over to other professionals. But the client becomes his own trustee that way, and he then subs out everything else. Now, people also wonder, once you you uh, transfer assets into the trust, are the funds safe? Well, the safety of the of the funds is not dependent upon the administrator, but they're dependent upon the different mutual funds or money management uh, companies. So a person needs to look at the track record, correct? Right, and right. The investment ob- objective of the uh, selected money manager should be scrutinized. Yeah, and the client is actually his own trustee, so he's going to be looking at the different investment for our companies. Well, Doug, could you? Um, I, you know, this sounds like an excellent and fantastic financial planning tool. How could you summarize these features for our listeners? Well, I would say this, Linda. A charitable trust is the most powerful financial planning tool today. It, number one, will overcome on the retirement side the cap on retirement plan contributions. It avoids the penalty due to overfunding retirement plans. And it avoids the 10% penalty on taking money out before age 59 and a half. On the estate side, it will go ahead and increase the inheritance for the heirs and reduce estate taxes. And on the tax side, it will give a present tax deduction. And on the retirement side, again, it will give a lifetime income. And also, it will protect everything from creditors. I think that's the best summary I can give. If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. How can I help you, Will? This is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. Um, Hi, Doug. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. I have some property that I inherited that I'm going to sell and has a fairly large capital gain on it. When did you inherit the property, Will? A couple years ago. All right. What's the value of the property? It's it's selling for thirty three five. Thirty three. Not exactly sure what the basis is, but it's around ten to fifteen thousand dollars. And the basis? Uh, how did you get the basis? Well, that was the cost. That's what you. Who who left it to you? Well, actually, it was my mother inherited it, and she's been giving it to us gradually. Um, now wait a minute. I'm confused. You said you inherited it. Well, it ultimately it was my grandmother's, um, but it's come through my mother to me. This is very crucial. The question I'm asking you. Did you inherit the property, or did you receive it by gift? I received it by gift. So you didn't inherit it? Right. Okay, that's very unfortunate. Because if you had inherited it, there'd be no capital gains. Did you know that? 
Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> a lot of people don't know that. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I think of it is inherited property, but it's really not. It's not inherited. Unfortunately, it's not. I was hoping you were going to tell me that the, that the ten thousand was what your the basis that your mom, who owned it, had left it to you in her will, and when she died, that you thought that her basis was yours, and that is not the case. Right. If you are gifted property, then the cat, then the basis is the same basis as the person who owned it that gives it to you. That basis carries over to you. Right. On the other hand, if you... I it went that way when you inherited it as well. Worst thing you can do, because there is a wonderful situation called a step-up in basis. For example, let's assume that the property you inherited, that no, that you received by gift, let's say you that, that it was worth 33500 the day that you got it. If it was worth 33500 the day you got it, and... The basis of the person that left it to you, your mom, let's say, was ten thousand. Then your basis would be thirty-three thousand five hundred. Right. The basis of the person who inherits property is the value on the day they inherit it, which means you turn around and sell it the next day, and there's zero capital gains. But if she gives it to you and you turn around and sell it, then you pay tax on twenty-two thousand five, twenty-three thousand five hundred. Well, given the option, I'll keep my mother. <laughs> Well, no, the, be- the best right. thing the best thing is to make sure that nobody gives you anything if you think you're going to sell it. See, that's the, whole, that's the whole strategy. Never let somebody give away to you what you're going to hold anyway until that person passes away because you're really shooting yourself in the foot. See what I'm saying? Right. You miss all the step up in basis. Okay. Okay. Well, any more? Yeah. By the way, any more questions? Give me a call at the office, and I'll go over your specific numbers if you want. If you want, well, my number at the office during the week is eight seven two seven thousand eight seven two seven thousand, and you can speak to Linda. Okay. Thanks. It's just the second time I've heard your program, but I enjoy it. Well, good. Thank you for listening, Will. Okay. Thanks. All right. Well, Doug, Linda, what's new in the world of insurance planning? I'm going to say long-term nursing care insurance. You know, an illness that requires long-term care can deplete your nest egg, but it's a risk that many people often overlook. After all, retirement's supposed to be about finally having the freedom to do the things you've always wanted, not about getting sick. On the other hand, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, 70% of Americans who turn 65 will need long-term care at some point, which means if you're married, the odds are pretty good that at least one of you will need long-term care. And it's important to note that the cost involved won't necessarily be limited to medical care, but could also include assistance with the basic personal tasks of everyday life, such as eating, bathing, dressing, using the toilet, or dealing with incontinence and transferring to and from a bed, a chair, or even a wheelchair. So these activities of daily living, the ADLs, are often uh, necessary and requiring hiring a custodial care person who is a non-medical care uh, individual that can help with preparing meals or maybe uh, assist with medications or skilled care, which is treatment uh, by a licensed professional, such as a nurse or a therapist. Of course, the costs for these services are going to vary widely depending on what part of the country you live in, but none of the options are cheap. And if you think Medicare is going to pick up the tab, well, think again. It's going to pay for some 
part-time services for those who are homebound and for short-term skilled nursing care. It may cover part of the first 100 days in a nursing home, but it won't help with ongoing care. So how do people come up with the money? Well, if you're very wealthy, and by that I mean that you have assets totaling in the millions of dollars, you're probably going to have the means to cover the costs yourself. But if you're very poor, you likely can count on your state's Medicaid program. But for most people in between, it is challenging. Yeah, you know, for a long time, the best alternative was to purchase a traditional long-term care insurance policy, what we call LTC policies. But these days, the premiums can be steep, especially if you're older, if you already have health problems or you want more benefits, which puts off many pre-retirees and retirees. And much like auto insurance, if you don't get sick, and you don't use it, then there's no way to recoup your premium payments. But the insurance industry is coming out with more options to assist with the expenses associated with the long-term nursing care. On the other hand, you have to keep in mind that there are usually additional premium requirements or costs associated with the purchase of these additional options. It's almost like a a lose-lose situation when you sort of start walking into this realm And you can't ignore the possibility that you or your spouse may someday need care and the money to pay for it. To help safeguard your nest egg, it makes sense to prepare a strategy. Don't be the ostrich with the head in the sand. Have a strategy to address the potential need for long-term care. And the sooner you do, the less stressful it can be. So, what do you do if insurance agents aren't fiduciaries and get a big commission And yet, there is a huge need. If you're like most people, you want to know if and when you would be able to self-insure. So call us. Make an appointment to meet with us face-to-face. You need to discuss this as a part of your overall financial planning. I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. My father is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And we're at Lewis Financial Management, doing this week, month, and year after year. Call us at 919-872-7000 to schedule a time to come in and ask your questions. So, Doug, what should people do? What should retirees do about their income? How does one live off their investments if their investments are producing lower incomes than they once did? What's what's the solution? Well, I think the solution for many people is to look for alternatives. You know, there are two ways to create income. And I like to use the illustration of chickens and eggs. If the chicken is your investment and the egg is what comes off of your investment, it's a good illustration. So one way is to go ahead and kill chickens. Another way is to get more eggs. But if you're only owning securities that produce very few eggs, then you're in a problem. So you want to have an appropriate mix of both. You want to have some investments, some funds that are growth funds in your portfolio that are for growth. And yes, you may have to kill some chickens to get some income from them, but you also want some investments in your portfolio that will cover your living expenses that are egg producers. The science and the art of this is is what we do. We help you balance how much in uh, one type of investment, how much in other type of investments. And when people hear of alternatives, sometimes they think of uh, very exotic and risky types 
of investments. That's not true. There are alternatives that are extremely risky, such as commodities and hedge funds, hedge funds and so things, forth. Right. But there are also alternative investments that are just straight income producer, which are not exotic. And of course, that's what we do at Lewis Financial. We help you balance the portfolio so you have some egg producers and some just chickens that grow fatter. Doug and Linda, when we talk about alternatives, sometimes I think a little um, in the back of my mind that some people often hear that as what we hear is code word for annuities. I'm glad you said that, Deborah. It didn't occur to me when I mentioned it earlier, but if you're out there listening and you think that uh, the Lewises are hinting at buying annuities, the answer is threefold. No, no, and no. <laughs> we do not consider annuities as an alternative, as an income-producing investment. And right. An annuity is an insurance product from beginning to end. It's just an insurance policy, and we don't approve of them for income. And part of that is because you give up control. Uh, maybe explain 100% that, of Deb. That. Yeah, Can you I mean, explain that? Well, let's use Doug's chickens and eggs. And, and as an aside, one day when you have a headstone, <laughs> I think it might have chickens and eggs on it. Because you are definitely the man in Raleigh known about chickens and eggs. And everybody can get that. So it makes sense. It's so easy to understand. But we don't want to ever give up our chickens. I mean, literally, that means if you give away your in, that, that lump sum to the annuity company or the insurance company, you've given it up. It's gone. It's not yours. Instead, maintain control. Have an investment that produces income, and you keep those eggs, and you keep the chicken. Yeah, and you're right. And I like the way that, uh, that Linda threw the question in there, because basically, the annuity is an insurance product, and using that illustration, it's very simple. The insurance company says, give me all your chickens, and I'll give you eggs for life but you get none of your chickens back. And that's the trade-off. We don't like that. We like you to keep your chickens and also keep your eggs. Speaking of chickens... I saw something in the News and Observer, and somebody's renting out their chickens. Did you see that? I did. I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> so if you don't have to buy them, you can just check it out and see if you want to be a chicken farmer or a chicken owner and have eggs every morning. Listen, I, hey, I grew up having fresh chickens. I think it's great. Chickens and eggs, yeah. For those of you listening tonight, we're, we're, we're being a little silly here, but when my kids were younger, we indeed, we had live chickens, and every morning the kids would go out. And they would get those eggs. So it's a very appropriate um, story for us to use, uh, you know, as we're dealing with investments and income. It's it's a real one because we did have chickens and eggs. Hi, Laura. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can we help you this evening? Um, I had a question. My, we're, my husband and I are about to inherit some, I think it's like a life insurance policy from a relative of his that's died, but she lives overseas. And so um, it, it's, in the, it's in the process of being, like her state's being chopped up, I guess. And so we don't know exactly how much we're going to get, but it's going to be pretty considerable. And I was wondering if there was any way to avoid, like if it could, I'm sure it's in her will that it has to go to us or whoever, but like if we could avoid taxes on it, because I know we're going to have to pay taxes over there. But then do we have to pay it again once um, it comes over to our account over here on the state side? Well, let me ask you a question, Laura. The amount, uh, is it going to be over? You think it'll be more than $10,000? Yes. Okay. Then the question is, is it going to come from insurance or not insurance? You said insurance. Do you mean insurance? Yes. Um, 
Yes, it's like a life insurance policy. All right. Well, if you were here in the United States, I could tell you absolutely that when you receive money from an insurance policy, it is tax-free. Okay. If you will... uh, Call my office during the week, or you can call my office after we get off the air. My Write down this phone number. It's 919-872-7000. Okay. And then I will schedule, or Linda will schedule, or Deborah will schedule a meeting to meet with me, and then I'll go over all of the pieces and look a little more closely for you with regard to the international aspect of it. We have had several clients who have received inheritances from different countries. Uh, I believe that we will be able to help you get away uh, with what you want to do without having to pay any taxes bringing that money in. But I don't want to speak absolutely until I look a little more closely at the country that you're talking about and look at the provisions. But we have had several instances. Uh, there have been some from Canada, one from Canada, I recall, one from France, uh, and uh, one from Germany, come to think of it. So if you will do that. But normally, if it's insurance in the United States and, an ins- and, 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 and the policies issued by an American insurance company, beneficiaries who receive insurance proceeds do not pay taxes. Is this the, going to be the only okay. thing? Is this the largest amount of what, you, of what y'all will have? You and, I, I presume you're married, Laura? Yes. Um, there's also going to be like um, a, like a piece of property that's going to be sold and then divided as well. And that now that has very unique differences, and that does differ country by country. We have seen that happen. I, okay. I, the overriding principle is that most countries have arrangements with the U.S. that if you pay taxes in one country, you're not required to go ahead and pay the same tax in the other country. Not all countries have that, but most of them do have such a provision. We see that a lot, for example, when we have clients who are living in border countries with the U.S. For example, uh, uh, what we call snowbirds, Canadian snowbirds, who live in, who are Canadian citizens, and then they fly to North Carolina during the winter or to uh, Florida. Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have um, Arizonans and Mexicans that go back and forth across the border. Mexicans who are uh, Americans that are living in Mexico going back and forth. So uh, each country is different, but I do know the real estate is different from the insurance. Okay. So uh, those proceeds will be treated differently. We can definitely help you, though, because we have had a lot of experience through the years with estate issues, and there's probably nothing that we haven't touched on one way or the other. I'd just like to have, sit down with you and have all of the details in front of me. As a matter of fact, we actually had one, we actually had one on Guam once, didn't we, Linda? Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, Laura. And um, I mean, you know. Um, well, you hope it wasn't a serious uh, loss, was it? Was it someone you were close to? Uh, yeah. Well, yes, it was my husband's grandmother. Oh, That's not a congratulations. No. no. No, it's not. But we're hoping this will be very, it, it will, it will um, benefit our children and, um, and their futures and that kind of thing. So. Well, I'm sorry for your loss. And I know that it was definitely in her heart to, for it to be a blessing. Right. And on that note, yes, we, you know, we hope that all will go smoothly uh you know it's always difficult dealing an estate and i know personally because i'm in the middle of that as well so i can i can empathize but i hope that it, you know all goes smoothly and 
And uh, on your end, it would be good if you and your husband have any questions regarding this and in regarding your overall situation to go ahead and jot those down. And when you call us, we'll be happy to go over that with you. Okay, great. Thank you. Everybody have a great week and thanks for joining us on Money Matters. You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug, Linda, or Deborah in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Saturday and Sunday at 5 p.m. for Money Matters with the Lewises on 6 